Basically, um, there's going to be three, as you know, three evenings that we're looking at this subject of the Kingdom of God. And um, just to sort of anticipate tonight and let you know where we're going, tonight we're uh, very much looking at a, te- a teaching session on a, a brief, it could be a lot longer, mate, uh, you know, brief survey of the Kingdom of God in the Bible, but I'm not going to get too much detail until we get a little more detail when we get to Jesus, because he is so important to understand all this, and the importance of Jesus, the King, really, and his Kingdom. <clears throat> and then next time we're going to talk about the Kingdom present and future, which means we'll look at what, what it all means for us now, Kingdom of God, uh, touch that briefly tonight, but really we'll look at that much more next time, and the future, I think we'll do quite a I'm feeling to do a little bit on heaven and the kingdom of, you know, the new heavens and new earth because I I actually think um, we often don't talk about that and I would like us to do that more. So I'm going to put a fair bit in on that next time, uh, the present and the future. And the final one, try and be really practical about living, how do we live this out as citizens of the kingdom of God. A little stack of extra notes uh, there if anybody arrives a bit later. I don't know if we... David, David... uh, Dave, Dave, do you, could you have some of these in case anybody sneaks in? Well, they're not sneaking in, of course. <laughs> Fred, and, but um, walking boldly in, in fact. Fine. <laughs> okay. Um, I've got this switched on. Hope it's going to work. Uh, I think this whole business of the kingdom of God, um, for me, it was something that I missed out completely. I was brought up in a Christian home. I was brought up in a fairly well, very strongly biblical-based type, biblical teaching church. And I don't think you heard much at all about the kingdom of God. Uh, hardly anything. Oh, well, that'll be the first one. I'll probably switch it. That's all right. Leave it up there for a moment. Didn't hear hardly anything about it. And um, I think when I, I was already baptised in the Spirit, I think we'd already started the little house church in Hastings that we were part of. Marion and I joined. Um, before, and now you get to hear people talking a lot about the kingdom of God. You thought, oh, I hope... You know, my parents had warned me that I was possibly getting into a cult. They were very anti-charismatic, really, and they said, well, we don't like this, you know, cult sort of thing. And so you thought, oh, because the only people who really seemed to mention it much were the Jehovah Witnesses who had kingdom halls and things. And you think, oh dear, I don't know what this is. So you begin to look at the kingdom of God and you suddenly find it's a subject right through the Bible. And in fact, it, 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 it's particularly important to understand that the New Testament and the Gospel is often called the Gospel of the Kingdom. And so the good news, let's remember the word Gospel is good news, it's just an old way of saying good news. So the good news is good news about the Kingdom of God. That's literally often what's said. So we find that Jesus talks a lot about the Kingdom of God. He preaches it with signs and wonders. It says Jesus went about went throughout Galilee, teaching their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And he announces the arrival of the kingdom like a herald here in Mark 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. It's interesting words. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus talks like that, and, and probably you can remember yourself, plenty of other examples. But then as you move on from Jesus, you move into the book of Acts, you find that that's still a theme of their preaching. So Acts 8.12, But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised both men and women. So that's sort of the way they sum up their preaching. Paul refers to how he taught, when he talks to the Ephesian elders, towards the end of his ministry really, as far as they're concerned, before he's captured and taken to Rome, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So, I mean, that's how he summarises it. I mean, you could say preaching Jesus. No, no, on this occasion he says preaching the kingdom. And what I always think is quite fascinating is this is the very last verse of the book of Acts. The very last verse of the whole book. And the book of Acts is like the first scene of church history. And it's as the curtain comes down on Act 1, Scene 1, because there's a lot of more to come, and we're still in this drama of church history. This is what it says. You see, Paul is in his um, home, he's under house arrest, and, 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 but he's preaching boldly and without hindrance. He preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, 
That was the theme. He, he, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about Jesus. That was how it's summarised. And then you think about Jesus uh, and his gospel or his message and he has a, a rather unusual way of explaining what is, what's going to happen. And this is famous verses in John 3. Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So he's not even just talking about being forgiven, he's talking about being born into the kingdom of God. And uh, this other verse there, Jesus answered, you know this is the whole dialogue with Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. So here's something interesting, it's a revolutionary thing that's got to happen to you, a revolutionary change for you to get into the kingdom of God and born again. When the uh, apostles in the early church are teaching what it is to be a Christian, salvation, here's a little taster from 1 uh, Colossians, Paul's writing, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the, the redemption's there, the forgiveness of sins there, which we're familiar but it's actually about a kingdom. And it's about moving from one dominion perhaps a carefully chosen word, but implication is a rather similar. Moving from one kingdom to another, like we might even talk about moving from one nation to another, under one rule to under another rule. That's one of the ways it's described. And Jesus says you need a radical change to be born into the kingdom of God. Here, it's pretty radical. You're rescued from one and transferred to another, in the old translations it says, rather than brought into. So, you, you know, it's quite dramatic terminology. You're rescued and you're transferred to another kingdom. So I think it is very important we understand this. Very important we dig in and ask ourselves, well, what is the kingdom of God and what can we learn about it? Jesus said nothing, he said, he said lots of sort of powerful things about the kingdom of God. Some of them we'll look at another week because you can't tell everything tonight. But one of them is he said, he said, seek first the kingdom of God. It's like, this is the most important thing. And all these other things will be added to you. It's not like this is an interesting sort of um, bit of highfalutin sort of doctrine for specialist people, you know, people who really come out on a Sunday night and mean it, you know. But you're wise to come out because this is core stuff. Jesus said, this is the thing to seek first. This is really what it's all about and, and, and you know, other things will fit into place around it, if you like. It is of paramount importance, Jesus said, that you seek the kingdom of God. Well, we do need to know a little bit what it is. And so that's what we're going to do for a little while and, uh, I, I, you know, I'm going to try and help share it with you. Not because it's mysterious and, and too complicated, but it's sometimes hard just to get hold of it and say, well, what does it mean for us? So we want to be ending the evening. I mean, we're in a very privileged position, living when we do, as always, after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is amazing time. But we can actually trace this right through the Bible. In the Old Testament, there's a surprising lot about the kingdom of God. So here's a, an excerpt from Psalm 145. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving towards all he has made. The theme is there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jews, the people of God, were looking for God to break in with power and establish his kingdom on earth. They understood that to mean that they as his people would become those who ruled, in effect, brought God's rule to the nations. And that that would be a season of immense prosperity and success for them. Now, they didn't get the whole picture and they even failed within the context of what they'd been told. And you, will, you know, if we have time, you could see what, what they should have done. Um, think of things like Moses and what was taught. They would have lived kingdom lives. They would demonstrate them to the nations. They would have bring the rule of God in. And they, they, they realised that they were far from that. As history went on, their position seemed more unreal and weaker and weaker. And the hopes of the kingdom began to fade. But the prophets still kept referring to it. And actually, 
they began to, to, to give more understanding towards the end. We'll look at this again. We'll go back and touch some of this briefly in a moment. But this is just to give you a flavour. And so actually this bit I'm going to put up now is from Daniel. This is quite near the end of the Old Testament history. And Daniel, and you'd need to know the context, and most of you I think would, this is this massive uh, vision that, that this pagan king had actually, Nebuchadnezzar, of, the, of, of this great idol with gold head and coming down through silver and bronze to just feet of clay and then a, a stone cut out without hands like in other words you know there's no human involvement comes and hits this thing at the feet and it all begins so it hits it in the age of the feet because you know the interpretation is these are various empires and, and it all begins to crumble and the stone becomes a mountain and fills the earth now in that context these are just the little snippets of what Daniel says then the iron the clay the bronze the silver and the gold were broken to pieces he's describing the vision at that same time, and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock, that's the stone cut out with the hands, that struck the statue, which was human powers and empires, became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And then this is part of his interpretation, as you can see, they're two verses apart, set apart, just extracted them. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, he's referring to, the, uh, the feet of clay, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. That's amazing. Now, that's one of the very interesting, stirring Old Testament prophecies, that God's going to do something, even, this is Daniel the remnant of, of, of the, that first hope, if you like, of the Old Testament people of God, and they're in captivity, and God just says, not just to Daniel, but he, even the ruler of the known world, this emperor, has a, a, a vision, and, and it gives Daniel an opportunity to say, you know, you may be gold head to this, but one day God's going to intervene with a stone cut out of their hands, and his kingdom will be the one that endures. And that's just a flavour of the sort of thing in the period after the Old Testament finished, finished, after Malachi, there was a period of 400 years. In that period, there was a lot of concern with the kingdom of God. Rabbis kept teaching it, kept teaching people to expect God's kingdom. They understood quite a bit of what the prophets said. And they were looking for a period of, of restoration. And what their expectation would have been was really back with the old model, if you like, that God will restore Israel. And Israel will become top dog nationally. And God will kick out all the, and by the time of Jesus it's the Romans, but there were others before that. He will kick out these other empires and establish his empire through us. Now, that wasn't just nationalism, that was all tied in with this hope of God's kingdom. I say that's what many of them taught. Some of them had a more spiritual view. And uh, we know that from just little tasters. We know from the Hannah and Simeon at the time of Jesus. They were looking for consolation for Israel. They're looking for Messiah. They're looking for the Messiah who was great David's greatest son who would somehow bring in God's kingdom. And I'm not sure all of them would have only seen it in terms of political power, though many at that time would have done. So, the Jews at the time of Jesus were not at all unfamiliar with the concept of the kingdom of God. This is not new stuff. When Jesus comes and brings his message, the phraseology is not new. Nobody is sort of saying, what's he on about, kingdom of God? Everybody's waiting for the kingdom of God. We want the kingdom of God. Uh, and so, when John the Baptist first began to mention it before Jesus, he stirred up a frenzy of interest. Because here, under the domination of yet another foul empire, which perhaps the more astute ones would have thought, that's probably about the feet. You know, we've had the Medo-Persians. They might have even, some of them have worked that out. And here comes John the Baptist. They think, yeah, maybe God's going to do something in this time. And they're very excited about John's preaching. Here's a little taster, Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, that was a great message, and it drew. People flocked to John the Baptist. The kingdom of heaven is near. I, I don't worry about the phrase heaven and God at all. Um, it's the same. 
the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. It really is. It's just when Matthew writes his gospel, he's writing to a largely Jewish audience and it's almost a courtesy, normal thing that you don't mention God's name, you, you mention heaven where his centre of power is and where he lives as it were, but you, you do that instead of God. So, that, you know, whole false interpretations, in my opinion, have been built on what's the difference between heaven and God. Well, I don't think, I really, really, really don't think there is one. And I think uh, it's just a sort of red herring to get too worried about that. So we're talking about the kingdom of God all the time. So this is the kingdom of God. And he, he's saying, uh, John was preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And this was, as I say, not some vague thing that was surprising somebody, people. It was actually very exciting. It was saying, there's a nearness. God's going to do something very, very soon. Now, the big problem was that when Jesus turned up, also talking about the kingdom of God, which we've already seen, so we won't put those quotes up, announcing the kingdom of God is here, it really wasn't a very comfortable message. In fact, there were lots of aspects of it that were puzzling or positively offensive to some of this audience. Let's just have one taster of that. This is from Matthew 21. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, it's marvellous in our eyes. And this is all part of, uh, in a context where he's, he's speaking with Jewish leaders, chief priests and Pharisees listening. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone, and I think there's a reference here which may be linking with Daniel's stone as well as others, They all had this stone image probably in their understanding. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. They knew he was talking about him. They, them, they did not like at all what they understood him to be saying. I wonder if, uh, Chris, we could actually put the screen off now because I haven't got any more scriptures on it and I don't want to distract people. You've got anything else you need in your notes that you have in front of you. Because really that's a, a, a very important introduction to get you a feel of the excitement of it. As I said, Jesus did not need to explain the kingdom of God. To the Jews, that would have probably meant to them the absolute rule of God. The absolute rule of God. God ruling uncluttered on earth. Another phrase might be the government of God. Now, how do we define it? John Hosier, when he, he's done a whole sit, section, a book on the, the kingdom of God, which is very good, he talks about it as just God's will being expressed. Which is, which is a helpful phrase. I always feel it's a little not enough, if I'm honest. And another guy called Graham Goldsworthy, who I've read, defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. And I want to get the best of both. So I would say, for what we want to tussle with, God's people in God's place under God's rule expressing the clear will of God. So we can actually connect with that church. I'm going to get there right now before we do all the background. You know, we are meant and called to be God's people in God's place under God's rule, but expressing God's will and implementing God's will on earth and bringing in, if you like, the kingdom, demonstrating the kingdom, demonstrating the will of God. Now, it is important to understand there is a dis- that the sovereignty of God and the kingdom of God are not the same thing. That you could you could easily sort of be fuzzy in your thinking and think, well, you know, isn't God in charge of everything, isn't he? When we're talking about Bible terminology, we need to understand what's, what does the Bible mean about what we call the sovereignty of God as opposed to the kingdom of God? Well, there is no question, no man or demon is outside of the sovereignty of God. Okay? God is sovereign over everything. Even if you go to hell... Go into hell, says the psalmist, you can't escape from God. God. There is nowhere where God is not able to exercise his power. Now, you may sometimes struggle with that, say, well, if he did, why doesn't he stop this, why doesn't he stop that? That's a whole other story, and uh, we need to work that through sometimes. But let's, let's, let's just get clear, God is sovereign. God can intervene anywhere. He, he made the whole thing. He, he is before all things. All things in him consist. He's the beginning and the end. God is absolutely sovereign. And no matter how hard the devil may fight against him, God is still sovereign, isn't he? 
So there's no question about the sovereignty of God. But in the term the kingdom of God, as the Bible reveals it, we're talking about a sphere where God's will is being submitted to and his righteous rule is enjoyed and extended. We're not talking about his sovereignty. We're talking about a place where, if you like it, where people are acknowledging God is king and his kingdom is coming. His power, his will is being done on earth. Not in the sense of the, well, you know, if there's anything happen that God doesn't know about or doesn't in a broad sense tolerate, you know, the permissive will of God. We're not talking about that. We're talking about where God's best is happening. Where God's first will is, where, where God's rule is being responded to and implemented. God's sovereign rule is universal, but the kingdom of God is not. Uh, there's a dominion of darkness. We've already seen that. We read it in Colossians 1, verses 13 to 14. There is a dominion of darkness. There are areas where darkness has a lot of sway and has a lot of impact. And where in terms of people's active interaction, it's a long way from the kingdom of God. We were there. We were born in the dominion of darkness. We didn't naturally, we weren't naturally God's people in God's place under God's rule. We didn't think about God. We hated God. The devil had more influence than God had on our lives at one level and the normal practical level, not talking about the overarching sovereignty of God. We were in the dominion of darkness. And, and so really there is a real difference between understanding the sovereignty of God and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of light and love. And it's something we really need to understand, rejoice in being in, and bring into this dark world. There is a kingdom battle going on. That will be the third of our talks. We'll be more detail on that. But there's a spiritual war going on. The kingdom of God is invading the dominion of darkness. We are invading Satan's territory. We are in conflict. And we're bringing in God's best rule. God's best government. And that's what we're called to do. So the kingdom of God, let's just try and have a quick survey through the Bible to, to sort of understand what I've, I've been saying and see how it all worked out. It will be quick, don't worry, but it's quite important, I think, to get this. There are a series of stages we can trace in the Bible. The kingdom revealed in Eden, the kingdom revealed in Israel's history, the kingdom revealed in prophecy, and then particularly where we'll linger and finish a more important lengthy time, the kingdom revealed in Jesus Christ. When I say prophecy, I'm, when I say the kingdom revealed in Israel's history, I'm thinking Abraham to Solomon sort of time. Kingdom revealed in prophecy is sort of Elijah through to John the Baptist and then we're into the New Testament times until the return of Christ with the kingdom revealed in Jesus. Let's quickly go back to the first, the kingdom revealed in Eden. God is creator. He creates men, man and woman and they're his creatures. Now, God, of course, has a right to rule over all things. We've said that, the sovereignty. But actually, he's looking for a situation where he, as a loving king, has loving and responsive subjects and he, who interpret and apply his will on earth. Not simply being like a, 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 a domineering sort of puppet master. He, and so, Adam and Eve are brought into a relationship with God where they, ha- where they have real relationship with him. They're God's people, they're in God's place, Eden, and they're understanding his will and implementing it, with freedom actually, quite a degree of freedom to do things. They understand that the reality that's important is God's reality. The truth that is real truth is God's truth. They understand that. They understand that things that God says are the best things, and God's will is the best will, and that's how they live. And that is, if you like, a, a, a mini, in minuscule, the kingdom. That's a little model of it. It is the kingdom. The kingdom is there, being demonstrated in Eden. The people of God, in the place God prepared for them, under the rule of God, and freely and happily expressing the will of God. Now, God does set limits, which we know all about, the, the, the parameters of the relationship. Um, he is not interested in, as I say, just puppets. He's looking for them to be responsive to his will, to understand it, interpret it and apply it and use his wisdom and his word to bring it to earth. And uh, therefore there are uh, sort of ways in which he keeps them in relationship, keeps them walking, choosing to walk with him, the whole thing of the not to eat of the knowledge of the tree and of good and evil, uh, which is really not to go outside of the sphere of their relationship with him, to try and interpret their own good and evil and try and do stuff their way and take no regard to him and his will. Uh, well, as you know, 
the fall is a terrible break. It's a terrible tragedy where there's a disengagement from the Creator. There's a rebellion against Him. They reject the rule of God. Basically, so we won't have God as King. And that's what they're actually saying. We don't want the Creator as our King. We'll be our own kings, which is the root of all the darkness, really. We'll be our own King. We will decide all the rules and implement our will, not God's will. A unilateral declaration of independence, and it's a very serious matter. Now, it's impossible for God to be true to himself and at the same time tolerate his own dethronement. He can't do that. And so judgment is inevitable, and it's radical. There is a cut-off from God's kingdom. Now, God's sovereignty is going to still be there, but actually the kingdom, in all its glory of light and love and harmony and working out God's will on earth and enjoying his best, is all ruptured and broken. Of course, Satan has his hand in there, and sin and Satan between them wreak havoc. And part of the judgment is that giving over, really, to the path they've chosen. Death begins to work and soon has its awful place in it. And think one bad thing leads to another as this terrible darkness begins to spread. Now, this is the bit where we are involved right now. Every man and woman, including everybody in this room, is born into the dominion of darkness. Now, you're not born outside the knowledge of God. He knew you in your mother's womb. And God has plans for you. It's wonderful stuff. But that's all to do with our salvation and our expectation of God's relationship. If we're now dealing with this tonight, this is also a reality. You are born in a, in a kingdom of darkness and rebellion against God. And, and, and this is not... If you just, let's, take, let's take a very domestic sort of picture. If a young couple are married and have not yet had any children and they decide to emigrate from the United Kingdom to, um, let's take somewhere a little unusual, they emigrate to Saudi Arabia for work or to live. And there they live. And their children are born in Saudi Arabia. And because they establish themselves there, even their children's children are born in Saudi Arabia. That's what happens. So when these little ones are born, they're born into this environment. They're born into the languages all around them, the culture, the, 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 all the ups, the pluses and I guess large minuses too in some of these countries are there. They are born in this kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Mum and Dad once knew the United Kingdom. They once knew what it was to live in a, a relatively free country, really, and a democracy and all the rest of it. And the, we'll assume we're all good nationalists, so, you know, it's a great place to be. Well, now they're, mar- they're over here, and, 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 and that's where they're born. And that's what they know. Now, that, in a sense, that's what's happened. Adam and Eve ended up in the dominion of darkness. And that's where we all end up. So, it, in a way, it's not like... Well, you know, isn't it a bit unfair? No, that's how, life, that's how it happens. We are born into where our forefathers took us, which is not in the kingdom of God, in this wholesome sense. It's not God's people, in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his will and expressing it. That's not it. It's the dominion of darkness. It's a place of rebellion, hatred of God, ignorance about God, suspicion about God. It's all around us. And satanic influence in the background, where the prince is the prince of the power of the air and the, you know, the God of this world has influence. And that's where we're born. That's where we're born. You could be, you know, we're born in Saudi Arabia. If you drink a pint of beer, you could be in prison. If you steal something, you have your hand chopped off. So what's about unfair? Well, that's how it is in Saudi Arabia. Now, if you've been born in England, where you started off, you just get a pat on the head and an aspo. But, you know, <laughs> you, so, you know, so, uh, it's just a scary thing. But it's not the end of the story. Hallelujah. We're going to the gospel. We've got loads of good stuff. But it's worth remembering what the problem is. And we all know the evidence of it. It's all around us. But God's grace is also evident from day one. And from day one of the fall, there is that hint, that glorious hint of an answer coming. That the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. And there is glimmer of hope right from the beginning. And of course that begins to grow as we quickly hurry on. The kingdom revealed in Israel's history. Now, the whole of the Old Testament's history is theologically orientated. And there are many strands that are well worth exploring. The strand of covenant is well worth exploring. I've done it before a little bit here. But this particular kingdom strand also needs to be in my mind. Because God's covenant promises to Abraham are the dominant theme 
behind the Old Testament. They're the thread, the promise that comes to Abraham. It's the background to a lot that goes on. And that promise is sort of the promise of God's kingdom coming on earth through the seed of Abraham. It's the promise of blessing all the nations of the earth through him. That Abraham's descendants will become a great nation, affecting all the nations. They will possess the promised land. And, and even as the Old Testament comes to an end, and certainly the New Testament, it's understanding that's a lot more than just Palestine. It's possessing the world. It's, it's sort of expanded, you'll see if you read your Bibles carefully. They're gracious promises that come through Abraham that are about God's rule coming. God's good rule, God's prospering rule. Now, it's clear that, those, that that's, there's going to be an element of faith. This is going to be a grace act of God, but there's a response of faith which Abraham demonstrates, responding to what God's intervention, God's sovereign and yet wonderfully gracious intervention. Abraham and Sarah are just pagans. They're sun worshippers, I think, in the Chaldees. And somehow God got hold of them. And they got to know God and they left their Ur of the Chaldees. They went out and they followed after God. They didn't get everything right, not at all. But they seemed to have, in a way, held on their faith through ups and downs, even their own folly. And uh, that's the story of Abraham and and Sarah. And, and, and And it's a marker for the rest of history, really. People who have faith in God's promises and who, who see God as their king and look for God's city and God's rule and respond to where God takes them. So they become God's people in God's place and under God's rule. And that, that sort of is, is the beginning of it. And that comes out a lot more with Moses and the Exodus could be seen. These are big moments in world history. And the Exodus is another marker. There, all the people of Israel are now in a horrible, dark kingdom ruled by the pharaohs, slaves and all the rest of it. And they're redeemed by an amazing act of grace. A, a wacky thing, really. You sacrifice a lamb and put the blood round the doorpost and God does the rest, basically. And then you come free. And, uh, and you're a people. You're your own people. You're a kingdom. Under who? God? Yeah, that's how they're meant to be. They weren't supposed to have the souls and all the rest. Not at that point. They were a theocracy. They're God's people. They were once in this foul kingdom of Pharaoh. Now they're free and they're to demonstrate what it is to be people under the rule of heaven. They're meant to be ruled by heaven. That will do good for them in their home. It will do good for them in their family, their diet, their health. There's massive promises. You know, none of these diseases on you. If you walk with me, if you walk under my rule and my guidance, you will be absolutely prospering in every area. So you can read it. It reads it all through Exodus and, uh, and Numbers, etc. And God spells out, I will be your God, you will be my people. You should be holy, for I am holy. Now, we know they just didn't, didn't do it. They didn't do it. They didn't stay as they were meant to, as the kingdom, uh, as a demonstration of the kingdom of God, under the rule of God. They were rebellious. They were sinful. There were bigger issues. There were other issues, which, which probably, in their own way, need dealing with in, 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 in detail. The issues of sin. The issues of law not doing any good because of human heart and weakness and the whole thing we know with our gospel. But on this thread, the kingdom thing just doesn't, they don't do it. They don't hack it, you could say. They get to some high points, but fall away. The highest point is probably David and then Solomon. And that's a high point of God's people demonstrating how it is when they really do, particularly under David, for all his weaknesses, try and live under God's rule and harmony. And uh, there's a sort of foreshadowing there, which is very clear in the Bible, of a greater king. Both David and Solomon foreshadow that. In a way, the Jews don't get beyond the earthly picture. So they're always looking back for a, a David-type moment. You know, that's what they're looking for even when Jesus comes. They want another David, really, because that was a very good time. That was when we were God's kingdom. And, and we were doing well. We were able to beat up every other nation around us. And that's about as far as they could get. But in a way, David and Solomon have huge weaknesses. Solomon, particularly, is a very puzzling figure. In one way, he's a perfecter. He's the high point of Israel's history. In another way, he is the architect of its destruction. Solomon is absolutely a tragedy by the end. It's all messed up by his own folly, in many ways, despite his apparent wisdom. And the kingdom in a way, trails away, sadly, after Solomon. So you get the prophetic period. 
the kingdom revealed in the prophecy. And in the midst of all the decline and judgment, which actually we looked at, didn't we, on some Sunday mornings a year or two ago when we went through some of the subjects, do you remember, as we built up to Elijah? And it's not a, a pretty history, actually, but during that time, the prophets keep stating God hasn't given up. He will do something. His kingdom will come one day. There will be a, a future of the kingdom of God. And uh, future history will reflect past history, but go way beyond it. That is a valid way you can interpret broad brushstrokes a lot of what the prophets are saying. They will look back to David, but there'll be a greater David. There'll be a greater king and his kingdom. And actually, they see it ultimately affecting the whole earth. The most uh, weighty prophets, I think, the Isaiahs and others, see that this... I mean, Isaiah's a wonderful book. Don't ever forget... Isaiah, enjoy it. But he sees this, and he sees all, he, he doesn't even quite understand it all, but he sees a suffering servant, and a ruling king, and it all seems to be tied together, and the nations, and the mountain of the Lord becomes higher than all the other mountains. There's loads of great stuff in there, but it's all a little bit seen like through a glass darkly, seen in the distance. Like, and I see a mountain of the Lord higher than all the other mountains. And he said, yeah, yeah, what about that bit you just said there, though? And, you know, he, he sort of sees all sorts of things. Amazing, amazing amazing insights. And others too, who bring in the new covenant, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they, they point forward to a glorious perfection. Now what they actually see, in some cases, is the final end result, when the whole earth is filled with the glory of the Lord. And when there's a new heaven, a new earth. And of course this is a classic thing, what's called prophetic foreshortening, which is quite easy to understand, and it's, in a way it's very simple, but when prophets look forward, they can't always tell how close things are to each other, like you physically can't. If you physically look at mountains in the distance, and we've had the privilege of going to Nepal, and you know, you look, and the foothills, you really can't tell how, and I remember, I mean they're huge mountains, some of them are massive, well the biggest in the world, of course they're big, but, but you know, Dave said to me, well, those are nearly 100 miles away. Which is, I mean, you think 100 miles, what's that? That's Hastings, where we used to come from. And you know, the thing looks right up there. You think, well, it doesn't look 100 miles. You know, it's massive. It's right up in the sky. And of course, there's mountains all in between. It's very hard to get perspective. And I think that is true with the prophets. And most theologians would say that. They'd say, they see, for example, in our terms, they see Jesus' first coming and second coming, and they don't see the gap. They just see it all as part of, you know, they might see the suffering servant and the reigning king and it's all tied together and, they, they, you know, they see the whole thing. And actually they're right, like Daniel, it is all part of a whole thing. The, the, the stone's cut out with our hands, the stone hits the idol, the idol begins to crumble, the stone begins to grow and one day the mountain fills the whole earth. Now actually that's perfectly right. But us in the middle of it said, hmm, it'd be nice to have known something of the time scale. But, you know, that's how it is. They just see, and actually we need to live with that. It's all of a one, you see. Jesus has come and the process is well underway. Now, actually, one day it will be finally completed when Jesus comes back and all authority is given to him and even the last enemy, death, is dealt with. And then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, which will be the complete whole kingdom in its perfection. And it will be great. We will not be waiting around for something to happen, like we heard this morning, that sad carol. What was it? All dressed in white, wait around. <laughs> That's quite funny. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, as Steve did this morning. That is not what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And it's a good thing to remember that. It, I mean, it'll be fun. We'll talk about that next time. I think it'll be glorious. It'll be everything that's, that we, we, we would want. It'll be an ideal situation because that's how God will restore it. So they talk of a new nation, the prophets. I'm, I'm losing my thread here. The prophets talk of a new temple, a new David, a king, a new Zion, all these things. Now, Judah was restored uh, in 538 BC. There was some restoration and some sort of brief uh, building of another temple, but it's nothing like the glory that's been looked for. And uh, the, even the later prophets, right at the end of the Old Testament, the Malachi's, the Zacharias, the Haggai's, they know this isn't it. There's loads. This, is loads. this is far short of what we're looking for. And they prophesy about something coming. So 400 years of waiting and frustration 
and testing really follow. And as I said, there are many different ideas that emerge, looking for a literal king and Israel to become, if you like, a world empire again. All sorts of things that I've already talked about. Some waiting for the consolation of Israel. And then we come to what is the most important bit for, for what we're doing, and, 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 and for everything really. We come to the last bit, a kingdom revealed in Jesus Christ. What we need to understand much, and we do need to understand this, brothers and sisters, for Christians to understand how to interpret the Bible. Much of what the Old Testament is looking for in terms of the kingdom and its glory is all focused around Jesus Christ. It's all about him. He is the key to interpret the whole thing. Now, he's not finished his work yet. And we have a part to play in this, as we'll see in later weeks. But it is still all about him. And in the end, everything in heaven and earth will be summed up in Jesus. Remember the beginnings of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. You know, it is all about Jesus. And Jesus is the fulfilment of the whole kingdom promise and everything. Else. He is the king that brings in the kingdom. Now, that's very important. The gospel is quite often referred to as the gospel of the kingdom. We've seen that already, and there's a number of other references in your notes. And Jesus declares the kingdom of God is at hand. So actually, what is loud and clear is that this is the beginning of the fulfilment, Jesus is saying, of everything you've been looking for, everything that's been promised. The kingdom is here and at hand. Now, just a little digression, just not a digression even, a little aside... You know, some Christians get themselves in a mess because they are, listen to my words, unbiblical in their literalism when they look at Old Testament prophecies. I've had people give me a hard time and say, well, you're not fundamentalist enough, literally. They are unbiblical in their literalism. What do I mean? They are insistent that fulfilment of many of these prophecies I've briefly referred to, Isaiah's and others, must be in the precise terms prophesied. What do I mean by that? Well, a new temple has got to be a building of stones called a temple in Jerusalem. Now, that is an unbiblical literalism. If you read your New Testament correctly, you're already wrong. The whole thing does not work like that. That is the foreshadowing. That's the typing, typology. And already even the prophets themselves are are, are saying things that don't quite fit. And prophecy is full of stuff like that. I mean, it's full of very unusual things, especially when it gets quite, uh, is it not apocalyptic, is that what I mean? Is it apocalyptic, Daniel and Revelation? Particularly when Daniel and Revelation get apocalyptic, it gets very odd. I mean, you get a bride described as a city lowered out of the sky. Well, sort that out, you know. As a woman, who look, she might not be very flattering, is it? You look just like a block of flats, love. You know? <laughs> a block of flats being lowered by a crane. Oh, you're lovely tonight. <laughs> You know, come on, what are we talking about? Well, I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's obviously highly poetic, visionary stuff, but it's got loads of it. If it's trying to describe something which relates in, in a way to the audience that's listening to it and yet connects them to something and takes them beyond it. And so, actually, the New Testament does not take that literalism. It repeatedly maintains that Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of many promises and shadows and foreshadowings. He is the Lamb of God. You know, we are the temple of God, living stones. The New Testament is very clear in the way it does that. New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament is not literal. What is it? It's Christological. If you want your theology tonight, the New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament is not primarily literal, it is primarily Christological. In other words, it's Christ-centric. It's all about Jesus Christ. And it's fitting it around him. And that's how it makes sense when it's Christological, when it's Christ-centric. That's how we interpret the Old Testament. He is the centre of everything, the fulfilment. In the Eden, the Garden of Eden, the people of God, if you like, the kingdom, the people of the kingdom were Adam and Eve. In Old Testament history, the people of the kingdom were the descendants of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham, who were there by faith. In the prophetic hope, the people of the kingdom 
are just seen as a faithful remnant. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, the people of the kingdom, the people of God, are actually, I'm trying to put this literally, are Jesus Christ and his body. They're not just a loose affiliation of people to Jesus. The kingdom is the corporate Christ. So it's the king and his kingdom, the title for tonight. In the end, they're wrapped up together. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God, and the literal translation, is among you. I think sometimes it's translated as in you, which probably isn't a good translation. Um, uh, it's among you, it's apparently the literal. And so, so he's here, I'm, I'm the kingdom. <laughs> the kingdom is coming with me. As I turn up, the kingdom turns up, is what Jesus is saying. I'm doing, I'm bringing the rule of God, I'm bringing the goodwill of God. Jesus was supremely God's person under God's rule in God's place, exactly where the Father wants him doing, exactly it. And so he is the king. So the kingdom of God in, in the New Testament is Jesus and his people. It's not about whether Jew or Gentile, it's Jesus and his body. Now, obviously, they were primarily Jewish people and the link in the first century, and the link is he is the root of David. You know, of course the link's there. I'm not being disrespectful, but I think the real issue is what does any people or individual do about Jesus? That is the worldwide issue. Jesus is the king, is the king, and we've got to keep him central. He is the last Adam, the second man. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is great David's greatest son. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus, really. Jesus is the head of a new race, the cornerstone of a new temple, the firstborn of a new creation. And in Christ, we enter in to all the glorious things that he has made possible. So the locality of the kingdom of God is in a sense in Jesus Christ himself. Zion is where Jesus reigns. You come to Zion by coming to Christ. Perhaps you'd like to quickly look at Hebrews 12. I haven't put this up on the screen because I was just going to sort of gloss over it. But I think it's maybe good just to fix that last statement in a scripture. Hebrews 12, and I think I'm right in 22 to 24... But you have come to Mount Zion, Hebrews 12:22, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks better words than the word than the blood of Abel. It's sort of wrapped, it's written to Christians, or it's written to followers of Christ from a Hebrew background, and it sort of wraps up all the Old Testament promises and hopes, really. We've got Mount, all the images and metaphors, Mount Zion and the city of God and, 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 you know, the covenants in there. And in a sense, it says, you come to it when you come to Jesus. I mean, when you come to Jesus, you come into all the promises of God. They're all yes and amen in Jesus. And Jesus is picked up as the great David who picks up David's promises. Let's look at one scripture as you've got your Bibles open. Acts 13, verse 34. I could take you to a number of references, particularly in the early chapters of Acts. Because the early church made quite a lot of the link between Jesus and David. He was the Messiah, the king, who'd risen from the dead. And they made a lot of it around the resurrection. Let's, uh, let's read from verse 32 of Acts 13, just, uh, just uh, oh, I don't know, just down perhaps to verse 37. So Acts 13, you know, it's difficult to know where to stop. 32, we tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. I mean, just that verse alone. Jesus is bringing and experiencing and receiving the holy and sure blessings promised to David. They come through Jesus and to Jesus. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, buried with his father's body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. The resurrected Jesus is great David. He is the king. 
He is the one who brings in the kingdom. And the kingdom is here. And the kingdom he demonstrated, these people were saying, we're demonstrating. And they were also seeing signs and wonders and proclaiming good news for the poor and freedom for the captives. And they said, it's here. (laughs) The king's come. The king is alive. All the promises given to David and David's descendants are focused on him. And he, God has raised from the dead. And now... He brings in the kingdom. So Jesus is the focus. He's like the the lens. It all focuses in. The God's people, God's place, God's rule, it's all focused in Jesus. Jesus' people are God's people. They're the new Israel, or he is the new Israel in Christ. Jesus' people are God's temple, where God dwells through his spirit. Jesus' people are under the new covenant of relationship and rule and uh, where God fights for them and is, is for them. So who can be against them? And so everything is focused on Jesus and Jesus Christ. And that's where the kingdom is wrapped up. So as we get towards the last phase of what I want to say, we're going to look at four ways in which the kingdom of God is revealed in the person of Jesus briefly. And that will sort of set us up for how we end this evening thinking about ourselves and for the weeks to come. The kingdom is revealed in Jesus personally like this. Jesus reflects the kingdom in his character. Jesus expressed perfectly one who was dedicated to the will of God, in harmony, bringing the will of God. His behaviour, his words, everything he did was only what the Father told him to do. So he is the absolute epitome of kingdom life. What the kingdom's meant to be. Not about, we know, oh, if the will of if and by, maybe God has his way. No, no. In harmony, doing it. What do you say, Father? I'll say it. What do you want me to do, Father? I'll do it. So Jesus is an absolute epitome of kingdom character. He's bringing heaven to earth. He's expressing God's will among men. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and heaven. And he was bringing the will of God in everything he said and did and as he behaved. Jesus confers the authority of the kingdom. He he exercises it and he confers it. He passes it on. The Pharisees suggested Jesus was casting out demons by Satan's power. Jesus is quick to point out he had not come to ally ally himself with Satan, but actually to destroy Satan's works. Jesus said, I've come to destroy the works of the devil. And actually, one of his main goals was to invade Satan's kingdom and shake it and break it up. And he said, I have the authority to, he said, I bind the strong man and then plunder his goods. And that's kingdom talk. That's King Jesus talking. And he proved what he was doing by casting out demons. Then he conferred his authority on his followers. Literally did it then with the 12 and the 70, but particularly anticipated it with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it's it's built into the great commission as we call it in Mark 16 and Matthew 28 that the disciples will go in his name and exercise authority in the name of King Jesus they will cast out demons and they will lay hands on the sick and they recover they will do his works as they go obeying him and taking his words out into the world and teaching people to obey Jesus and walk with him That's how you work in harmony with God. That's how you come under the rule of God. To know Jesus as your personal Lord and King and obey him. He identifies, Jesus identifies with the kingdom. He says, you know, I've already said it. If I cast out demons, the kingdom of God is among you. He's basically saying, I'm here and that's the kingdom. The kingdom is here. And he says to his disciples, you have the privilege of knowing the secrets of the kingdom because I'm bringing you and teaching you those secrets. So Jesus identifies himself as the one who brings the kingdom secrets and opens, as it were, the door to the kingdom. He does the works of the kingdom. He said, let's look at this one because we, this is more or less where we're going to finish, but let's, let's just look at Luke, uh, Luke chapter 4. Let's start with a few, just a few of the Luke verses. Luke chapter 4, it might be worth just uh, getting this. Um, Luke 4 and verses 18 to 21. Uh, this is probably the run up. He's, he's in the Sonic Synagogue right at the beginning of his ministry, but he's in the power of the Spirit. He's anointed 
And he, he stands up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, verse 18. This is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now that is awesome. I mean, because this is a scripture about the kingdom coming. This is a scripture about the glories of God's kingdom. And when God's kingdom comes, you know... The, the poor will be blessed, there'll be freedom for all the prisoners, there'll be healing and release, and there'll be uh, like a, a jubilee period of, of, of favour of God. And Jesus says, today, the scripture's fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I am bringing in the kingdom. And we can just understand that a little more. Stay with Luke and turn to Luke 7. Because poor old John the Baptist goes through a bit of a depressed time, and who wouldn't? He proclaimed the kingdom was coming. He said the Messiah was coming, the Lamb of God. And then he got imprisoned by a very nasty Herod. And he wasn't having a very happy time. And, and so, I think it's around verse 20 of Luke 7. Let's just have a quickly look. When, uh, just before that, I beg your pardon, verse 18. John's disciples told him about all the things that Jesus was doing. And he called to his disciples. He sent them to ask the Lord, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? So John about having doubt. Are you, well I thought you were, the king? Are you bringing the kingdom or, or am I looking for someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind. Remember what we've just read in Luke 4. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who will not fall away on account of me. Basically, Jesus said, the kingdom's here. Tell them they can see the kingdom. God's rule is a good rule. God is a healing God. He's a delivering God. He doesn't want Satan's oppression. You're under his rule, not meant to be under Satan's rule. The kingdom will bring freedom to the oppressed. And Jesus is saying, tell him I'm demonstrating the kingdom. The good rule of God, the rule of heaven is invading earth to send, as it were, reassurance to John. So the kingdom has already come in a person. To find out what the rule of God is like, we have to look long and hard at Jesus. He expressed God's will on earth. If you met Jesus, you met the king, the kingdom, the king and the kingdom. The ministry of Jesus is the rule of God expressed. So what's that mean? Marks of the rule of God. Are the poor receive good news? The prisoners hear about freedom. The blind receive their sight. The oppressed are released. There is a time of God's favour proclaimed. God's favour and grace towards men. Good news on earth. Goodwill towards men. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, demons are expelled. There is salvation, there is release, there is deliverance, there is healing where the kingdom comes. So the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. It's a lot more than just individuals having their sins forgiven, though that is glorious. It's a lot more than just having eternal life, going to heaven when we die. That's great, we're going to be with King Jesus when we die. But the gospel is about a restoration of relationship between God and men and women. In Christ, you come under the good rule of God. You become God's people in God's place under God's rule and knowing his will and doing it and bringing in the express will of God. It's holistic. It's renewing. It touches every aspect of our lives. The kingdom of God will affect how you work. It will affect your money. It will affect what you do with your money, where it comes from. It will affect your health. It will affect your children. It will affect your marriage. It will affect how you speak. It will affect what you do 24-7 every day. Because you live in a kingdom. And think, oh, that sounds a lot. Living in the United Kingdom affects you 24-7. All the tax, how it is in a kingdom. It affects how you speak, it affects the money you spend, it affects the taxes you pay everything time you buy something, it affects what rules you can and can't do. That is it. But that 
is so much better in the kingdom of God. It's releasing. It's all about salvation. It's about healing and wholeness and deliverance and the goodwill of God being ruled in your family, being ruled through your tongue, through your, through your possessions. And, your, and, and, you know, everything is the kingdom. And, and we bring it out and it spreads out beyond us. The church is not the whole of the, of the kingdom. The kingdom, as it were, extends beyond just being the church. But the church is the one that carries the kingdom, really. We are central just as, because we're the body of Christ. And, and, and so we do have this amazing responsibility to go on continuing the work of Jesus, to bring the kingdom until the king comes back. Now, we do know that this battle we're in will continue until then, and it isn't a battle, I think, where we will say there is total success before Jesus comes back. But there's some very exciting things that I think God expects us to be doing. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole earth and then the end will come. That's next time. We're going to talk about the present and the future. But it's really exciting to be a Christian, isn't it? Amen. Yeah. Let's stand together. I, I, although I'm going to... I, I sort of... I thought I was going to give you questions, but I don't know. I think I, I, think I want us to pray for a bit, just for a few minutes. We're, we're, you know, we only get five, five minutes. We're going to finish bang on time. I'd just like us to pray, um, maybe, maybe on our own for a moment. Lord, help me to see this. Perhaps even remember the Lord's Prayer. Lord, let your kingdom come in my life. Let your will be done in my life, in, in my home, and in my workplace. Lord, I want to be a demonstration of your kingdom. I want to walk like Jesus walked. That's what we, you know, Jesus is replicating his kingdom through us. We're part of the corporate Christ. And we bring, we're the kingdom of light in a dark world. We're children of light. You know, all that stuff. Just pray for yourself for just a moment. Let's just do that.